How was the word of God heard by the people when it was first spoken? The time, the place, the political landscape, the struggles. And how does the word of God apply to this time, this place, this political landscape, our struggles? This is Michael Leasley in Context. Understand God's word and apply it to your life. In Context. You're listening to Michael Easley in Context. I'm your co-host, Hannah Seymour, with my father, Dr. Michael Easley. Dad, we're starting a new series today. Tell us about it. Yes, we are. And, um, you know, about uh, 18, 24 months ago, you and I talked about doing a, I wanted to do a live event yeah. where we brought key expositors in from around the country, invited pastors and Bible teachers and so forth. But COVID came along, and so there we are. So absent waiting for another time to get the right people and the right schedules together, we, you and I talked about this and said, let's just do some interviews. So two primary goals of this series that we're calling... Get Your Nose in the Book. Get Your Nose in the Book. And my hope is that it'll help people that, you know, we don't, we don't read the Bible, yeah. We talk about it, but we really don't read it. And then the sort of long game for this series of messages and interviews is to encourage people who are in ministry, maybe some young pastors, maybe you know a young pastor, you know someone who's going into seminary, going to ministry, to the importance of exposition, to teach the Bible, not just topics and trends. So those are sort of the two broad strokes. How do we encourage people to get in the Word? And then how do we encourage people to study it uh, with a view of teaching uh, from the Bible, not just culture. Love it. So we've got five episodes as part of the series, folks ranging from Dr. Coral, who we've had on the show before, to some friends, Mo Proctor and Robert Morgan, who both pulpit fill for you at yes. times at Stonebridge Bible Church. And they are some great interviews. So without further ado, let's go into our first interview with Michael Gorman. Get your nose in the book. How can a young man keep his way pure by keeping it according to your word? With all my heart, I've sought you. Don't let me wander from your commandments. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I told of all the ordinances of your mouth. I've rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and regard your ways. I shall delight in your statutes. I shall not forget your word. Psalm 119 goes on and on, and I wrote in the margin of that section, MJE, don't forget. I shall not forget your word. Timothy is instructed by our dear friend, Paul the Apostle. I charge you solemnly in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing and kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For a time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but... Wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work 
of an evangelist fulfill your ministry. On the broadcast today, Dr. Michael Gorman. He is the Raymond E. Brown Professor of Biblical Studies and Theology at St. Mary's Seminary, a fascinating CV that I don't have time to read all of, but I would just point out that he has earned his PhD from Princeton, and he has been at St. Mary's and the University of Baltimore, Maryland, for how many years now, Michael? 30 years. 30 Three years. Zero, 30 years. 30 years, and counting, and counting. He is a New Testament scholar, and I was introduced to Dr. Gorman by this wonderful book called Elements of Biblical Exegesis, and we'll have information in the show notes about how you can acquire your copy from Baker Academic Publishing. And this is an area of love for mine, Michael. I'm trying to be an expositor for 40 years now, (laughs) and I have been very concerned with what's happened in American pulpits, and perhaps global. You might have a better sense than me. But let me begin first by asking the question— what motivated you? Obviously, you teach in this field, but what motivated you to say, okay, I've got to write a textbook on biblical exegesis for this generation? Yeah. Well, thank you, Michael, for the question. Thanks for having me um, on board with you today. This book actually started as a series of handouts. When I was a graduate student at Princeton Theological Seminary, which is a Presbyterian seminary by you know affiliation, the students that I was uh, team teaching. I was team teaching as a graduate student with, with faculty, and and the students who were getting ready for ordination in the Presbyterian Church had to pass an exegesis exam. So they had been through two and a half years of uh, intense biblical studies and other studies, and many of them were coming to me after failing the initial exegesis exam. And the reason they were failing the exam, and they couldn't be ordained without passing it, The reason they were failing the exam is they didn't have a method to systematically work through a passage of Scripture, explain what it meant, and then preach from it, turn it into a sermon. So after several of my students had failed this exam, they came to me and said, can you teach us a method that we should have learned in our two and a half years in seminary? So I began meeting with them, giving them handouts on various aspects of exegesis. That eventually became a booklet. And that eventually became a book. The first edition came out 20 years ago. So it was a process, but the need was for future ministers to be able to carefully interpret Scripture in a systematic but also creative way. In your preface to the Revised Expanded Edition 2009, uh, it says, arguably the most important development in the field of biblical studies since the turn of the 21st century has been the turn, or rather return— to the theological interpretation of Scripture, you continue, attend to the biblical text as a primary theological text, as the vehicle of divine revelation and address. I love that, and address. Reading the Bible as Scripture seemed almost abnormal. This is this is so disappointing, Michael. <laughs> I mean, not not your not your comment, yeah. but the, the the diagnostic that we have drifted so far. I won't name names and. We won't on the broadcast, but so many churches that have had powerful influence and imprint don't open the Scripture anymore. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple things going on. One, that that comment was directed out of a context of especially universities and biblical scholars who are trained in universities who 
simply read scripture as a historical document, as a literary work, and it certainly is both of those. I don't want to deny either of those. But what I think happened in a lot of um, seminaries and also churches is that that approach to scripture overtook the traditional approach, which was to read scripture as a direct divine address, as I say there, a, a word to us from God. And it needs to be carefully um, analyzed, like a good historical document and a good historian would. It needs to be carefully read, like a good piece of literature should be read carefully. Mm -hmm. But that's not the end of the story. It's That's the beginning of the story. And um, I think it's pretty obvious that a theological, that is, a, or a spiritual reading of Scripture is going to go much more deeply than simply to say we're reading good literature or good history here without denying either of those. Now, your your text is a, I'm going to call it a paint-by-numbers, I don't mean that to be unkind, but it's a paint-by-numbers methodology for people who read, oh, this is how I can learn to do biblical exegesis, which I greatly appreciate um, on my literal and metaphorical shelves of books on homiletics and exposition and exegesis are countless books. And the reason I was attracted to the one Baker just published or republished for you was it was more methodical in, as opposed to uh, philosophical or giving histories of this. And so to put it maybe in layman's terms, it's practical. Is that, is that a fair uh, assessment? Yeah, sure. It, it is practical. There's a lot of theory behind it. Yes. There's a lot of theory behind it, but it's intended to be practical, sure. When you start with, and I don't know, um, are you teaching this currently in, in the seminary? That book is used in our seminary, and we have two divisions at St. Mary's. We have a Catholic seminary by day and a non-denominational ecumenical seminary by night. It, it's, it's the standard text for beginning biblical studies in the evening division and sometimes in the day division, depending on who's teaching that particular course. This book is sold more than 60,000 copies around the world. It's been translated into Korean. It's been translated into Portuguese. It's in its third edition. People have found it both theoretically and practically helpful. So it's being used as a tool for sure. Yeah. Let's talk to um, the in-context audience a bit. When they hear the word exegetical, their eyes might glaze over a little bit. And we don't want yeah. to, I don't want to say this is only for uh, people that are studying the Bible 20, 30 hours a week and teaching in a Sunday school or a pulpit, because I'm a big guy on mythology for Bible study methods, for exegetical, for learning how to share our faith. We need some paint-by-numbers approach to start. Now, we're obviously going to improve and grow and mature with those methods, but there needs to be some framework for how we do this. So, so give us the uh, Dr. Gorman 25-word or less definition of exegetical approach, how you see that. Sure. The word exegesis itself scares people. It, right. it sounds like a big seminary word or theological word. It, it's, exegesis is simply, it's from the Greek that means to lead out. So exegesis is simply the art and the science of reading the scripture so carefully that we lead out rather than read in the significance of the text. So that involves, and now I'm going beyond 25 words, but that involves... You're a professor. I'll let you, I'll let you go a little further. 
<laughs> You're a professor. <laughs> it, it, it involves looking at the contexts, that is the historical context and the literary context. Where does this passage come from? You know, there's a big difference between Jeremiah and Jesus, mm. big difference between Isaiah 1 and Isaiah 66. So we need to look at context and then we look at details, if you will, to put it in lay language. We need to look at the forest. We need to look at the trees. And um, many people have learned a, a basic method of Bible study that goes something like, what does it say? What does it mean? What does it mean to me? Or what does it mean to us? And exegesis focuses especially on the what does it say, reading very carefully and very closely. And I appreciate that because I remember in, in when I was in seminary 100 years ago, we talked about eisegesis, you know, that you bring your presupposition to the text. And you and I have heard more than our share of sermons where a person just goes off. They take a text completely out of context. I mean, there's something in behind my head. I'm a stickler for the context. What was the author <laughs> yeah, saying right. in the context in which that thing was written, said, spoken? Was it an exhortation? Was it a prophecy? Was it a warning? Was it a lament? Was it instruction? Uh, on and right. on. And then the big bridge, of course, later on, we may have time to chat about, is how we apply or understand that in our context, because that bridge metaphor we often use about the context in which it was written and then how we understand it today, is that's another whole discussion of theory. And um, now in your text, and what I love the way you do this, because you do a great overview of textual criticism, historical linguistics, form criticism. You know, you and I had courses, I'm pre presuming, I had courses in each one of these fields, you know, form criticism and, and literary criticism and, you know, redaction. Oh, my word, you know, understanding what redaction and you know, you get later in the translations on formal equivalency, dynamic equivalency, some of the things that we bounce around. Again, for the person that hasn't heard this nomenclature, Michael, give me some uh, ways I would explain it to a person that hasn't had to endure what you and I have had to endure. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it's important to realize that at the end of the day, when we're reading scripture, on the one hand, we're reading just like we would something else. Uh, you don't read a, a speech by Abraham Lincoln as if it were written by Martin Luther King, for instance. Uh, you don't read a, a dialogue by Plato as if it had been written in the time of St. Augustine, for instance. So we need to be attentive to context. But in addition to that, in addition to reading carefully, knowing whether this is a a parable, or whether it's a, a word of prophecy, or whether it's a historical narrative. These are all the same kinds of things we do kind of naturally when we read carefully. We don't, when I, when I teach exegesis, I often tell students, the first thing you need to do is write an exegesis of something in a newspaper. Sometimes I'll make them do an exegesis of a, a political cartoon or an editorial. How is it structured? What's the context? What's the point? What's this person trying to say? So on the one hand, we need to read scripture like we would anything carefully. On the other hand, scripture is unique. And we read it in terms of its inspiration. We read it in terms of its um, having been interpreted in the church for 2,000 years and in the people of God for 3,000 years. We need to take into account, for instance, um, I often tell students, the, one of the differences between reading this text in a seminary or in a church is 
our context includes the whole canon. So when I read Revelation, I need to connect that to Genesis. I need to connect that to Ezekiel and, and read the scripture within the entire framework of the biblical text. So I, I guess it's fair to say that a lot of the skills that we learned in school, whether it's in even elementary school up through college, a lot of the skills we learned in how to read can be applied to scripture. At the same time, there are new things, new questions we need to ask, new ways of reading that we need to encounter when we read scripture um, as scripture. Now, I want to throw you a bit of a curve, Dr. Gorman, because you're speaking of people that read. And uh, I'm of the mindset that people don't read anymore, or there's a small percentage of the population that reads and when I get up on a Sunday morning, and, and I think uh, you know this, you know, pastors tend to uh, collect people that are somewhat like-minded. You know, you're you're not going to go to a church that's uh, super socially oriented if that's not your cup of tea. You're not going to go to a church that's exegetically, you know, dogmatic. You know, really teaches the Bible if you're more, let's say, experiential in your view of life. So, with that said. You have the privilege of training students who want to be in seminary. They want to be readers. You look across our country, Michael, people aren't reading or, or they're reading in, in this format, which is very truncated, very quick. Uh, retention rates are very low compared yeah. to a text or the Bible that we're you know learning to study and mark up and take notes and understand. So you've made a comment now a couple of times. And I want to ask you to push back a little bit to say, are people reading? Well, statistics certainly demonstrate what you've said. That is that people are reading less and they're reading differently. In a way, in an ironic way, that connects them back to the early church. Because in the early church, almost nobody was able to read. Touche. So what they had to do was learn how to listen carefully. And so I would suggest that pastors who and others who, who deal with trying to communicate Scripture also need to learn um, rhetorical and other kinds of devices that will get people to listen carefully and, and actually train people, teach people how to listen, how to listen carefully. One reads, one, for instance, looks for the main point. We need to learn to listen looking for the main point. We need to learn to listen to shifts in, in um, argument or shifts in the story. Some of us are better at that than others. Uh, my wife and I recently were listening to the Harry Potter stories on um, audio. And I'm a very much of a visual learner. It took me a while to really enjoy listening to the stories and being able to follow the story carefully but after a while, I became much better at it. So we have to adjust to cultural norms without necessarily always approving of those norms and leaving them there. One of my major concerns is not so much that people listen, but that pastors fail to take advantage of the fact that people are listening to podcasts, to uh, all kinds of things. And, and let's take advantage of that in the way that we do present the gospel and they do present biblical teaching. You know, uh, you'll hear sometimes people talk about Christ 
38 parables, depending on how we classify and count them, and that he was a master storyteller. Uh, I often remarked that Jesus never told the same story the same way, that he was very, um, I mean, he's the God-man, so he has a bit of an advantage over us, but his, his parabolic teaching was uh, universally understood whether you were a child or you and me who are two centuries later still exegeting these passages going, what was he talking about? And I find it remarkable that that story can contain a, a transferable concept, a woman who's at a well, uh, a man who can't see, a man who comes to him at night, who's a religious leader, whomever, and he can use an illustration, he can use a metaphor, he can use a parable to teach. It's amazing. Even perhaps in churches that don't really teach the Scripture, they know some of those stories pretty well. And that tells me that's an opportunity sure. to jump on what your comment was to say. It's a great opportunity to stand in front of people. It's a Sunday school class or a Bible study in your home or a sermon to you know give some excitement to this. This is the living Word of God, and it's timeless, and we have the privilege to explain it. There's a whole... Um network literally of people called the biblical storytelling network and what they have done is learn how to learn a scripture passage and present it 95 percent accurately in a way that brings the story to life um, a good friend of mine is a leader in that movement if you will faculty member actually with us and i remember on two occasions now hearing her tell it's called biblical storytelling the entire Gospel of Mark from beginning to end in one non-interrupted sequence and with amazing presentation, emphasis, almost dramatic telling. And people are spellbound by that kind of thing. And it's an, an oral culture waiting to happen. At the church I served in Northern Virginia, they brought Max McLean in one Sunday when I was out, and he quoted the book of Revelation in a dramatic, of course, he has a very wonderful set of pipes, and he quoted that book, and people were on, on the edge of their seats, and they gave him a standing ovation when he completed it, not so much for his performance, but that this now was, or you've, you've explained this Bible storytelling, it comes alive. And I think too many of us, and, and perhaps people in the pew, metaphorically, it seems boring, Michael, when they open the Bible, it's complicated, it's a big book. And when we're talking about a student who has to write a message, whether, again, Sunday school, Bible study, church sermon, they got a lot else going on in their week. They don't have the privilege like you do, or I do technically, to study for a living. You know, you got meetings and people and committees and visiting and problem couples and problem finances and so forth. So it takes a lot of commitment to train a person to say, go into the, your local church learn to study, learn to be an exegete, and learn to communicate that to an audience. Yeah. This is going back to a visual dimension, if you will, but one of the things that's in that book, which I have found very helpful over the years for pastors and others who preach and teach, is to print out, or do it electronically, but let's say print out a copy of what your scriptural text is, and to do what I call marking it up take different colored pens and pencils and highlight markers and just read it again and again until you see connections, till you see what seems to be 
the point of the text and to, to work with it in such a way that it becomes clear to you that there's something significant in this text that then you can literally, for me at least, go into the shower with and say, okay, how am I going to make the connection, the bridge, to go back to your language, between this text and the contemporary situation of my congregation or my people, whoever they happen to be? But um, when I teach classes, let's say on the book of Romans or, or Revelation or whatever, my students are required to mark up the text of the entire epistle, entire gospel or whatever, and find these kinds of connections that don't necessarily require 20 hours of research, but they do require a couple hours of careful attention to the text. And then, as I said, go to the whatever your prayer room is or your place of, of thinking about those connections, but having worked carefully on the text as text. On, on page 135 in your book, you show a sample of that worksheet uh, for John chapter 1, the first 18 verses. And uh, Dallas, where I was uh, attended seminary, Howard Hendricks, again, technology with you know computer software is a whole different discussion, but he would encourage us to get just simply manila folders and uh, the uh, eight and a half by 11 folded over tri-cut, third cut folders and make a chart of every book of the Bible and sort of like the walk through the Bible charts that you did just on your own. Make right. a chart, make breaks in it, look for repetition, for themes, for emphasis, for, you know, sidebar stories, yeah. whatever, and, and then and use that folder literally as your beginning place to put things. And he would bring his to class and show them to us. Of course, we all wanted to take copies of it and say, you've done the work, just give it to me. But it's that study of observation, interpretation, correlation, application, as he taught it. That's pretty attainable for people. Uh, it doesn't take a, yeah, a working I, knowledge. Degree I, it is. It do, you're right. And I think that lay people who are studying the Bible seriously should take that notice, if you will, that opportunity. And what I show on that page is something that anybody could do who's got mm -hmm. a who's got a text in front of them. People do it. People do it, I think, maybe not necessarily with a pen and pencil, but often do that when they're carefully studying or in a Bible study group at church or whatever. But I do think as well, one of the things I tell my students is one of the most important things we do when we read scripture is to ask questions and um, making observations also raises questions. And among the many questions one can ask of Scripture in, in the Christian tradition, uh, it's been common to say, when we read these texts, what do they tell us about the, what we might call the three theological virtues, faith, hope, and love? So when I read this text, what does it urge me, to, or us, I should say, because we're often too single and independent-minded when we talk about reading scripture. As I make these observations, what does this text now urge us to believe? What does it urge us to, to do, that is, love? And what does it urge us to hope for as we look to God's future, as we look to the future of our world, the future of the church, the future eschatologically, there's all kinds of ways of thinking about it. But what's one of the things I've, I've encouraged my students over the years if you're looking for basic questions, you don't know what to say about this text, just ask those three questions. What does it ask us to, to believe, to do, and to hope for? And um, that can sometimes help in the, in the bridge or the application, if you will, 
that we are now becoming part of this story and we're asking it to speak to us in the same way or a similar way, at least to how it spoke to its original audience. I used to teach a lot of pastors workshops and, and, and I love that. I love the faith, hope and love way of, of looking at it. I would ask them, you know, when you get confused and you're, you're down in the weeds with you know, whether you've done a word study or two or three, or you've got a critical problem in the text, or you've read too many commentaries and you're confused by what's the authorial intent is to step back and ask a big question. What does this tell me about the character of God? And then what is my response as a sinful human being who loves God and wants a relationship with him. What is my response to what this text tells me about the character, the person, the work of God? Haddon Robinson had a simpler way of saying it. Uh, what is it talking about? And what is it saying about what it's talking about? And it was just some of those clarifying questions because you're probably like me in the sense that you can get very lost in the weeds and the details. I can spend hours doing word studies. I love word studies. But the congregation needs about 25 words about my word study. <laughs> they don't need every citation I've looked up yeah. and chased down and the way it was used over here and over there in antiquity. And, um, you know, I think one of the dangers uh, we can do if we're a study kind of person, we can take the Bible out of people's hands because we're the experts who do the hard sure. work and we, this is what it really means. Well, then oh, how yeah. am I ever going to understand this, Dr. Gorman? Yeah. Well, I think one of the things you said there about the character of God is important. And another set of three questions that I often give students, and sometimes just people in, in lay groups uh, at church, I've been teaching adult education, leading adult education Bible studies for 40 years, probably 35, 40 years. And I've hosted, my wife and I have hosted a home Bible study in our home for 32, 33 years, something like that. But three other questions that can be asked, especially if we think about the Bible calling us to mission, to God's mission. What does this text tell us about what God's up to, God's mission, if you will? What does it tell us about the world and the world's need? What does it tell us about humanity? And then what does it ask us in light of what it tells us about God and the world? What does it call us as the church to do, to be part of God's mission in the world, if you will? Um, that's been very illuminating, I think, for, for people to think in, in those questions as well. There's technical language for that, but we don't need to use technical right. language always to convey uh, significant things. I, I am a structural analysis guy in the sense that I love looking at, I don't know if you say chiasm or chiasm. I know that's, that's a, I don't think it's north and south, but different people pronounce it differently. I've always said chiasms, and someone corrected me. You know, it's chiasm. Okay, whatever. But those devices to me, especially in Psalm, the Psalms, uh, the Gospels, uh, you, you talk about inclusios in, in your text. Again, help the person out who hasn't heard those terms. You know, our little church, we talk about them. They're familiar. I'll show them visually on a slide sometimes. AA prime, BB prime, CC prime, D, for example. Uh, help the uh, listener to this understand a little bit about why those are so helpful. And I'd love to hear your take on the structure and the inspiration aspect of this. I talk about the big A author and little A author. Did, did Mark really know about these inclusios that he was writing, or did God intend him to write those? Right. And sort of, that's a rabbit trail. But first of all, you know, about the structural tools and how helpful they are when we see them. 
Yeah, I think it's important. I'll, I'll start with a simple one that would be very helpful to most people, simply called parallelism. In the Psalms and in the Gospels and other parts of Scripture, the prophetic writings, uh, the authors of Scripture didn't normally make rhyme like we do when we, when we do a poetry piece that has standard rhyme. They, they rhymed thoughts. So a line, uh, something like, the Lord is righteous and good. The second line, God is faithful and trustworthy. I mean, this is two ways of saying somewhat related, almost sometimes exactly synonymous um, thoughts. And when we realize that, it helps us to understand the point that the author is making, the poet, the prophet, psalmist, Jesus for that matter, seek first the kingdom of God, language that sometimes gets explained by the following line or something like, uh, seek and ye shall find, knock and the door shall be opened. So this, this way of talking, this way of thinking is, is important. That's one thing I think can help people. And then there's the opposite, the sometimes called antithetical or uh, parallelism, first line and then the second line is opposite of that. More broadly, and I don't know how much credibility to give this, but people have often said the basic ways people speak is to say something, to move toward a middle point, and then come back at the end to the first point. So we see that in literature all the time. I mean, we're even taught in school, right? Your opening paragraph should tell your audience, make your point, your thesis or whatever, and at the end, wrap it up with a conclusion and in the middle have three paragraphs or whatever of, uh, of explanation. So this idea and don't, that, and don't forget a poem. Right. <laughs> the beginning of a text, any kind of text, and the end often echo each other. The technical term for that is inclusio, inclusion, if you will, bookends. That can be a very interesting thing to notice, that the beginning and the end, and then what's in the middle as a kind of fulcrum, maybe... That's the main point. And this first thing builds to this, and then this middle thing builds out and back to the kind of other bookend. So I do think that lay people are capable of learning these kinds of things that not necessarily need a 300-page book. But I think people who are trained in exegesis can pass on the basics of it and help us to be, as, as the church more responsible in our in our reading and, and understanding of the Bible. In your uh, resources for exegesis, which, by the way, for again, we have information about Dr. Gorman's book on the show notes, and I want you to go and, and purchase that online. But it's interesting how many I'm reading. Uh, yes, I have that book. I have that book. I have that book. So I felt good. But but um, <laughs> I was encouraged. You had Mortimer Adler's How to Read a Book. And I'll never forget, um, I'd finished undergrad and maybe a year's a master's, and I was starting a THM. And again, Howard Hendricks was talking about the 10 books everybody needed to read, and he always referenced Mortimer Adler's How to Read a Book. And I thought, here I am now, you know, how many years of education in just learning how to read. And that book was a watershed for me because I don't know how we're all raised differently, but do you finish the book, like clean your plate? Do you start the book and put it aside? And Adler was so helpful in saying, you know, identify the purpose. You just articulated these three, you know, tell them what you're going to tell them, 
tell them tell them what you told them was how the Toastmasters talked about that. But the idea was if the author isn't right. clear about what he or she's saying, it's going to be a difficult read. If the author has clarity, well, when we open the Bible, we're on the, the best footing we can be on because there is precision and clarity in the purpose of this literature. And but anyway, I was just uh, this is a sidebar. I was uh, it made me smile to see you recommend people read Mortimer Adler. <laughs> yeah, when when I was probably about ten years old, my sister, who's eight years older than I was, was a freshman in college, and she was taking a literature course, and she brought home a book. The title of the book was How to Read a Poem. And when I first looked at that book, I thought, What do you mean, how to read a poem? You you pick it up and you read it, right? Right. But that book stimulated me, even though I didn't understand 90% of it, it stimulated me to think about what does it mean to read? What does it mean to read a piece of literature that's called poetry? What is poetry? How do you best understand it? How do you best engage it? And I, I think also, and we haven't talked about this, but I, I think I should mention it, people read from different locations. And I think one of the things I've become aware of in the last number of years is how important it is to recognize that we all read from particular historical and social and, and church, whatever, locations. And I've been very aware of that as I've had the opportunity to travel around different parts of the world and hear, for instance, the way Africans read scripture and benefit from that. That's not a, a single way, but a variety of ways how people in New Zealand, in Australia, how people in England, people in our own country who are from Native American communities or especially African-American communities, ways of identifying with the scriptural texts that just go over my head because I don't have the same experience or the same context. Kenneth Bailey is remarkable in that regard, and I think you cite him as well in some of your resource list. I came across his... Um, is it poet through peasant's eyes or a peasant looks at poetry or something, but it was about Luke yeah. and right. his analysis of, and again, it's called reading Luke. Well, you're open to read it. Like you say, you know, but reading Luke is that book is like reading through Coke bottle glasses and all of a sudden having 2020 vision. When you read, ba and you may not agree with all of his conclusions, but the way he looks at structure and the way he talks about Israel in the context of what those par I mean, he blew my mind in his interpretations of parables. In fact, I've told people, don't ever teach the parables unless you scan through Bailey's interpretations, because the Middle Eastern mindset, let's say, of the uh, persistent widow, well, she keeps bugging the judge and he finally gives in. So we teach that as a persistent prayer, and maybe God will give you your request someday. That's not what that's about. About. You know, it, it, it was the acrimony of if you said that to a Middle Eastern culture in Jesus' days, people would have covered their hands with their mouth and go, a judge would never neglect a widow. And that was his point. We don't have an earthly judge right. who overlooks a widow. We have the God of the universe, and he knows everything justice-wise, and he's always going to judge justly. And again, it blows your mind because it makes so much more sense, number one. But it's your perspectives or, or economies, where we come from and how we read the Bible. That is a very important point. You know, my failure is a 64-year-old white man with four children, three of whom are adopted, one whom's biracial, with four grandchildren, and that's the way I see life. And it takes work 
doesn't it, to look from a different lens? Sure does. Absolutely, yeah. Let me talk about your charts a bit because we're about out of time. You have this table of exegetical methods. It's so wonderful toward the end of your book, and you talk about textual criticism, form criticism, source criticism, redaction, historical. Again, for our friends that don't, maybe those words sound intimidating. Michael, help us understand a little bit about what you're telling them in this section. Yeah. I'll take an, uh, an example from a more recent document than scripture, um, Martin Luther King's letter from a Birmingham jail, which if people haven't read, they should read. It's a remarkable piece of writing just to, to think that someone could write eloquently and passionately and persuasively from jail. But when we look at a, a document like that, one of the things we ask is, uh, did Martin Luther King, Dr. King have a, a precedent? Did he have, had he written something like that before? That's looking at the sources of his letter. When we look at the question of form, so-called form, the word criticism simply means analysis. So form analysis, what is a letter? What's the purpose of a letter? And, and how does it get structured? When we talk about social criticism or social scientific criticism, how do we analyze the culture in which scripture is being written? So in the case of Martin Luther King, we might ask the question, What's the social situation in the South and in the whole country that provokes him to write that kind of, of letter from jail when he wasn't getting the support from white pastors and even from a lot of black pastors for what he was trying to do? So we apply these kinds of analytical approaches to lots of different things. We give them formal, sometimes scary names when we talk about scripture. But as I said, if we realize that the word criticism does not mean to be critical of the Bible, but rather to be careful with it, analytical as, as needed, then those kinds of words can, I think, be uh, less scary and less intimidating. You're talking to a group of uh, Bible study leaders, again, Sunday school teachers, pastors. How would you encourage them, Michael, to uh, get their nose in the book to refresh some of the ways they maybe look at the Bible and how they can be a better exegetical student and how they can then bridge that to help folks learn God's Word? Yeah. Well, one of the things I think I like to do, and I'm, people say that I'm good at, is writing about um, difficult or technical subjects in a way that's understandable and usable to people who aren't used to that kind of language, that kind of territory, if you will. And so if a person is really interested in digging deeply into the scripture in a, in a serious way of, of studying and teaching, I would encourage them to take the book, my book uh, for one, and a dictionary. Sometimes you need a dictionary. My, some of yes. my uh, church members, uh, fellow members, say to me, I, I like reading your stuff, but I have to start with a dictionary. And then they learn the words... I even had a cousin tell me that recently. The other thing is, there are other books, good books. Uh, I'm thinking of some by Gordon Fee, for instance, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth, which is a fine book that deals with a lot of the same concepts that I deal with, but in a somewhat less technical and less sophisticated way for a different audience. So there are ways of getting at this, but I think if, if it's important for people to study and read 
and teach carefully, they will take the time if they realize they can do it and are encouraged to do it, I think they will do it. Dr. Michael Gorman, he is professor of the Raymond E. Brown Chair in Biblical Studies and Theology. He is also, for our purposes today, the uh, author of Elements of Biblical Exegesis, a basic guide for students and ministers, and I would say cynical teachers, and anyone serious about Scripture. You'll never waste time in God's Word, friends, and uh, I hope that our chat today with Dr. Gorman will encourage you that it's it's a living and active Word. You can never fathom the depth. You'll always benefit, and I pray that, that God will encourage you in your own personal study of God's Word. Michael Gorman, thank you so much for your labors, for your time, for your rigors to write so many things, yeah. and for being on In Context today. And thank you for having me. Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonamorphic, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters.